So we're going to look at three scriptures. First of all, that promise that's found in Psalm 89, the one that encouraged David's confession. It's found in the 31st 34th, excuse me, verse. And God said, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Now, secondly, the event, the position David to understand that promise is introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, that says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And finally, that New Testament verse I alluded to, the one that's frequently quoted, seldom understood, is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, we're going to talk about receiving God's forgiveness. And my title is, It's Not About us. Would you repeat that with me? It's not about us. Let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to teach and preach your Word accurately and faithfully. And by your Spirit, enable each one of us to understand what it is we need to understand in this moment of our growth. And to not only understand it, but to apply it so that our thinking is renewed and our lives are transformed. And as always, we pray this for the honor of Christ, the welfare of his people, and for the sake of our witness in a broken world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word today, may the Lord be with you. When Jesus instructed his disciples how to pray, you'll remember he instructed them to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who have sinned against us. Now, that directive from Jesus is found directly after, give us this day our daily bread. And it's connected to that. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Jesus coupled the two things together. He obviously was reminding us that extending forgiveness and receiving his forgiveness is like eating. Once is not enough. It needs to be a daily activity. But truth be told, despite Jesus' instructions, despite Jesus' invitation, despite Jesus' assurance, we struggle with both sides of the forgiveness equation. We struggle to believe that God will actually totally forgive us and forget our sins. And we struggle to continually regularly forgive others. Now that latter topic, forgiving others, we'll save that for another day. Today, I want to struggle, or excuse me, I want to consider why we struggle, all right? I'm struggling already. I want to consider why we struggle to confess our messes and why we struggle so much to receive God's forgiveness. 
And toward that end, I'd like to make this initial suggestion. We struggle to accept forgiveness because we make forgiveness all about us. We make it all about us. We believe a whole host of lies where God's forgiveness is concerned. Sometimes we believe the lie that born-again people should not sin. Sometimes we embrace the lie that God is disgusted by our sin, that he's put off by our failures. Sometimes we allow ourselves to believe the lie that our sin indicates we don't really love God and that our commitment and faith are not genuine. Sometimes we allow ourselves to believe the lie that there's a statute of limitations on the same sin occurring again and again and again. Sometimes we believe the lie that there are certain sins we will never overcome in our life. And sometimes we believe the lie that perhaps our sin is an indicator that we were never really born again. Now, we have help embracing those lies. All of those lies have their origin in the one who is known as the father of lies. Satan has been peddling those lies to God's people for a long, long time, and he's well-versed in what he does. He's referred to as the accuser of God's people. But I want you to notice something that all of those lies have in common. They focus on us, and they focus on our failings, and therein lies a problem for this reason. Forgiveness isn't first and foremost about our failings. It's about God's faithfulness. It's grounded in God's covenant, not in our condition. So to understand forgiveness, to embrace it freely, you have to understand blood covenant. The Bible is a book about covenants. It's divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We begin reading about covenants in Genesis, and we read about covenant in Revelation and virtually everywhere in between. And if you're going to understand forgiveness, you've got to understand blood covenant. Now, sometimes God's truth steps into our lives quietly. And that's the case where covenant is concerned. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, the passage we read earlier, a rather unassuming sentence introduces an ancient story that has eternal implications and the power to set us free where forgiveness is concerned. Now, the story opens, as we saw, when David and Jonathan, his friend, formed a blood covenant. Now, I know the word blood doesn't occur in the text, but it was implied, and any Hebrew reading it would know this was a reference to a blood covenant. What is a blood covenant? A blood covenant is a binding agreement of unreserved commitment between two parties. 
an agreement in which two parties pledge themselves and their resources to one another, in which they say, all that I am, all that I possess, from this moment forward, it belongs to you. Now that was such a serious agreement that it was always carried out in a very careful, very structured, legal ceremony, one that had profound spiritual insights. Let me walk you quickly through what David and Jonathan would have done and what many other people did in Hebrew culture when they formed a covenant. First, the two parties exchanged coats and weapons. That's partially described in our one text. And the act of exchanging coats and weapons signified the commitment of one's heart and one's resources. After doing that, the two parties would incorporate a portion of their partner's name, their covenant partner's name, into their own name. For example, if you were forming a covenant partner with me today, a covenant partnership, you might take my middle name and incorporate it into your name, and I might take your middle name and incorporate it into my name. When God formed a covenant with Abram and Sarai, he inserted the predominant sound from his name in the Hebrew, the hard H sound, and Abram became Abraham, and Sarai became Sarah, and from that moment forward, God referred to himself as the God of Abraham, the exchange of names. Now, covenant means a cutting, literally a cutting in pledge or promise. And so each party enacting a Hebrew covenant would make an incision somewhere on their body, and then they would allow their blood to mingle together. I remember watching old black and white westerns when I was a boy. And once in a while you would see two of the chief characters becoming blood brothers. Well, that wasn't original with Native Americans. That was going on back in the book of Genesis. In fact, one of the most common places where the parties would make the incision was in the palm of their hand, and then they would join their hands together. And many believe our modern custom of a handshake had its genesis in that covenant-forming act. Then the wound was sealed. But it was sealed not so that the scar would go away, but so that the scar would remain. Because that scar was meant to be a permanent reminder to the one who bore it and to the community at large that he or she was in a covenant relationship. In the case of God's covenant with Israel, the cutting that took place was the act of circumcision. Now, following this, the two parties would remind one another of the blessings that would accompany faithfulness to the covenant and the curses that would befall anybody betraying the covenant. Then they would erect some visible memorial as a reminder of their agreement. It could be as simple as a pile of stones. It could be a covenant orchard or a covenant flock. In the case of God's covenant with Israel, the memorial was the Ark of the Covenant. 
Finally, the ceremony closed with the ceremonial meal, consisting generally of bread and wine. And that's why Jesus instituted what we call communion with these words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And after all of that had transpired, the two parties would remind one another that this covenant wasn't going to end with them, but it would apply to their descendants as yet unborn. Now, when David and Jonathan formed a blood covenant, it was rather unusual for this reason. A blood covenant required unity of heart, unity of purpose, two people walking in agreement. And Jonathan, as you know, was the son of Saul, the king, and Saul was David's bitterest and most dangerous enemy. He hunted David like a wild animal and sought to take his life numerous times. But even though Jonathan was the son of Saul, he was totally unlike Saul, his father. Rather than hating David and wanting to destroy David, he loved David and wanted to bless and protect David. Now, move forward years later. Jonathan and Saul, as you know, were both killed the same day in battle. And in the ensuing panic, Jonathan's family fled. They made the assumption that David would exact revenge upon them. We know he had no such plans, but they didn't know that. And as they were fleeing, a family nurse accidentally dropped Jonathan's five-year-old son. His name was Mirab Baal. And in that accident, he was crippled for the rest of his life in both of his legs. They took him and settled in a place called Lodabar, out in the boons, a nowhere place. And they changed his name to Mephibosheth, which means son of shame. And there he lived, dragging his crippled limbs through the desert dust year after year after year. Now, after a period of silence, 2 Samuel 9 informs us that David eventually asked this question of his courtiers. He said, Is there anybody still alive from the household of Jonathan that I might bless them for Jonathan's sake. Notice, not because of their achievements, not because of their track record, not because of their faithfulness to the throne, not because of their contributions to the nation, not because of their righteousness. Is there anybody I can bless for Jonathan's sake? He wanted to honor his deceased covenant partner. And the honor had nothing to do with the person's merit. Well, he learned of Mephibosheth, and so he sent for him. And when Mephibosheth was brought before David, he feared for his life. How do I know that? Because he laid down on the ground and pronounced himself a dead dog. And those aren't the actions of somebody who's expecting good things on the horizon. You see, his brother, Isabosheth, had died opposing King David, and he likely anticipated his time had come. But David reassured him this wasn't about vengeance. This was about covenant blessing. He told him, all of your family lands are going to be restored to you, and I want you to dine at my palace 
table as a member of the royal family, and I want you to do that regularly for the rest of your life. It was too good to be true. And Mephibosheth wasn't originally convinced. Again, he called himself a dead dog. But David sent for people to bless him, and it turned out it was true. Now, here's where I like to use my sanctified imagination. Later, as Mephibosheth was dining at King David's table, I imagine there were times, don't you, when he felt out of place and like he really didn't deserve to be there. And you know, there are always jealous types around. And I can just imagine some others at the table saying things for Mephibosheth's sake like, boy, he's got a lot of chutzpah dining at the king's table after what his family did to David. But perhaps when Mephibosheth was doubting whether he should be there or not, David passed him the salt. And as David passed the salt, he saw the scar in David's hand, and he was reminded, I'm here because of the covenant with my father Jonathan. Or perhaps as he walked the hallways of the palace, he saw a place where David had displayed Jonathan's weaponry and Jonathan's coat, and he was reminded, I'm receiving this blessing not because of what I've done, not because of my merit, but because of the covenant. Now, what does that have to do with us? Everything. Everything. From the beginning, God wanted to enter into a covenant relationship with us, with humanity. But you see, nobody in Adam's household was worthy of entering into a covenant with God. Because every descendant of Adam has inherited two things, Adam's sinful nature, Adam's animosity towards God. That's why the New Testament says the natural mind is at odds with God. It's an enemy of God. Apart from the new birth, we are all enemies of God. And that's precisely why Jesus became flesh. Let me say, Jesus became flesh so that he could be our Jonathan in the household of Adam. Okay. Let me unpack that. Jonathan was the son of Saul, descendant of Saul. But he didn't share Saul's animosity towards David. He loved David, hence they formed a covenant. In similar fashion, in his incarnation, Jesus, who had always existed as God, became a descendant of Adam after the flesh. That's why he's called the second Adam. But even though he became a descendant of Adam after the flesh, he didn't share Adam's sin, Adam's animosity toward God. He loved God the Father. The Father loved him. He was without sin. That's why he and only he could establish a blood covenant with the Father through his death. In fact, Isaiah 42 says not only did Jesus establish the covenant, Jesus is the covenant. And his cutting in promise occurred on the cross. Now, that explains why those who place their faith in Jesus 
receive God's blessings, including the forgiveness of our sins. We benefit from Jesus' covenant with God the Father, just as Mephibosheth benefited from Jonathan's covenant with David. How? Through birth. Through birth. Mephibosheth wasn't blessed because of anything he had done. He was blessed simply because he was born into Jonathan's family. Now do you see why Jesus said you must be born again? Unless a man or woman be born again, they cannot possibly enter into the kingdom of God. Nobody earns their way into the kingdom. You have to be born into Jesus' family, if you will, so that his covenant with the Father then applies to you and Jesus begins to bless you for the covenant's sake, not because of your worthiness. You see, God's children receive his blessings, including forgiveness, because of his covenant with Jesus, not our merit. God blesses us. God forgives us for Jesus' sake. In other words, it's not about us. It never has been about us. It never will be about us. Now, once you understand that, you can start to break free from the misguided effort to somehow win God's love, maintain God's love, and earn God's forgiveness by virtue of your track record and your performance. Because any attempt to do that is a works-based detour around the freedom of the covenant, and it leads to a dead end. Here's what happens when you try to win God's love and forgiveness by your performance. First of all, you feel guilt over your sin. In an effort to deal with your guilt, you ramp up your religious activity. But that doesn't remove your guilt, so you experience disappointment. If you experience disappointment often enough, you begin to get angry towards God and you experience spiritual pain. And since none of us can endure pain and anger indefinitely, you eventually settle into spiritual apathy because it's just too frustrating, it's too hard, and it's too painful. And that, I'm afraid, describes many people sitting in churches. They have settled into a spiritual apathy as a way of avoiding the inevitable pain of trying to win God's favor when it never was about them winning God's favor. In contrast, when you understand the blood covenant, you recognize you don't need to work for God's acceptance and forgiveness. We get to work from it. It's already ours. There's a big difference working for something that seems to always elude you and working from something that has already been given to you. Covenant understanding will free you from Satan's accusations. And I want to remind you, when he comes against you as the accuser, don't argue with him. 
Don't offer him evidence of your righteousness. If you do, you've got to play right into his hands. He'll remind you of every rotten thing you ever did. Just remind him that you're forgiven, not because of your worth, but because of the covenant. He has no rebuttal for that. He has no argument against that. That's what John referred to in Revelation 12:11 when he said, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What does that mean? They pointed to the blood covenant, and they said by virtue of their new birth, they were in in that covenant. End of argument. End of argument. Now, if you understand that, you can begin to understand 1 John 1, 9. Frequently quoted and generally misunderstood. Because it says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why faithful and just? I mean, think about it for a moment. Wouldn't you think of God's forgiveness as flowing out of his grace and mercy? If we confess our sins, God is gracious and merciful? Why, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just? Well, it's because faithful and just is covenant language. And here's literally what John was saying. If you have been born into the family through your faith in Jesus and you confess your sin, which is your covenant right, to receive forgiveness, which is your covenant right, if God doesn't forgive you, he will be violating his own word, betraying his own covenant, and acting unjustly. At the risk of sounding blasphemous, when you confess if you are in Jesus, God has to forgive you or he would cease being God in that moment. He would betray his own nature, his own justice, and his own covenant. And what did he say to David? My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. That's why I said it's not about us. It's not about our failings, it's about his faithfulness. Let me close with this. A friend once asked me a rather odd question. It was a question I had never considered previously. Here was the question. He said, Rock, what five man-made things will be found in heaven? And he stumped me. What five man-made things will be found in heaven? And then he gave me the answer, the scars of Christ in his feet, in his hands, in his side. And that got me to thinking, why when he raised Jesus from the dead, why did God leave those ugly scars that bore testimony to man's ugliest and darkest hour. After all, when God brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, you remember, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on their clothing. So if he did that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why, when Jesus was raised, didn't he remove every trace 
of the hideous things that had been done to Jesus. Well, if you understand covenant, if you understand the story of Mephibosheth, you'll understand because those intentionally remaining scars are the eternal witnesses to the eternal covenant whereby those who are in Jesus are saved for eternity and forgiven of all sin and all unrighteousness. I grew up singing a hymn that spoke about the wounds of Jesus pleading for me. Scripture describes Jesus as our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. It literally means he's our defense attorney. And when Satan brings an accusation against us, Jesus doesn't need to compile evidence. He only has one exhibit, exhibit A, the scars in his hand, the scars in his feet, the scars in his side. When Satan brings accusations against you to Jesus, all Jesus has to do is say, talk to the hand, dude, talk to the hand. So when it comes to forgiveness, oh, Lord, I'm struggling to feel like you'd forgive me. It's the same old sin. I've been here a hundred times before. I must not really love you. I must not really be committed to you. I wonder sometimes if I was even actually saved. When it comes to forgiveness, remember the story of Mephibosheth. Remember the covenant between David and Jonathan. Remember the promise of God that he'll never break a covenant and remind yourself it's not about you and your failings. It's about God and his faithfulness. Then thank him for your forgiveness and move on. And I said, but I don't deserve it. Mephibosheth didn't deserve what David gave him, but he did it for Jonathan's sake. You and I will never deserve God's goodness, but he does it for Jesus' sake. It's not about us. It's about him. Let's pray together. Father, we humans tend to gum up everything we touch. And we have the capacity to mess up your perfect designs and your perfect provisions. We mess them up with our lies and our pride and our foolishness and our need to do things ourselves. Lord, help us to understand why when we confess our sin, if we've been born again by your Spirit, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, transform our thinking so that we know it's not about us, it's about you. So that we know we're not working for your love, we're working from your love. We're not working for your acceptance, we're working from your acceptance. Because, Lord, that doesn't produce sloppy living. That doesn't produce presumption. 
That produces holiness and obedience because those things are fueled and sustained by appreciation, not by guilt and shame. Guilt and shame leave us with four flat tires in a ditch on the side of the road, but appreciation puts wind in our sails and fills our hearts with gratitude. So, Lord, help us to understand it's not about us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.